Hey badasses, you're listening to Breathe Like a Badass, the podcast for professional women who want to enjoy life beyond anxiety and learn how to use mindfulness meditation to get more calm, clarity, confidence, happiness, and health one breath at a time. I promise you it's possible. I'm Hannah, meditation coach for women, and I'm here to remind you that wherever you go, there you are. And wherever you are is pretty damn awesome, even if it doesn't always feel like it at the time. This podcast is brought to you by my free ultimate meditation checklist, my totally free step-by-step roadmap of how to get a consistent, effective, and enjoyable meditation habit in place, almost no effort required. Head on over to breathelikeabadass.com forward slash checklist to grab it now. Or you can always come DM me on Instagram at breathelikeabadass to ask any questions and find out more. I'm on Instagram pretty much every day and I would love to see you there. Feel free to screenshot this episode and share it on your stories, tagging me at breathelikeabadass and let me know what you liked the most. Also, if you listen to this podcast and you like what you hear, please press pause and take two tiny seconds to leave a super quick review. Not only will it make my entire day slash week, but it will also help me get the word out there to more awesome women who really need it. That's it for the intro. Now on to the show. This week, I'm talking to Heather Thomas of The Mindful Kitchen. Heather is a food entrepreneur whose work revolves around practicing nature-relatedness, a concept, as we explain in the podcast itself, that goes way beyond mindful eating to teach us how interconnected we truly are with the natural world. Drawing on the key mindfulness principles of ritual, habit, noticing the world around us, self-compassion and more, Heather helps us to connect to nature with all of our senses so we can act more responsibly and sustainably to transform our earth. Heather's philosophy, which was developed from a lifetime of appreciating nature and food, as well as from climate change training with Al Gore, yes, actually that Al Gore, goes beyond simple eco-friendliness to actually changing our entire approach to nature, the planet, and our place within it as humans and living creatures. If you have ever wondered how exactly mindfulness can help us in the real world and go beyond the confines of our own crazy minds to actually feel connected to something greater and more compassionate, then this episode is for you. We also talk about how to increase your empathy and become less self-destructive, how to embrace sensuality in food, how to use mindfulness to change our lives rather than simply to cope with them, and how to tune in with our senses to truly appreciate the world around us. This was honestly a totally fascinating conversation. I really found it so refreshing how Heather was actually able to mix complicated concepts with some down-to-earth realism and the spirituality of seasons with some truly hard-hitting neuroscience. And we geek out over some peer-reviewed studies and science. It's pretty cool. If nothing else, it was really brilliant to hear why we should love trees as much as we love ourselves. Yeah, just go with me here. And Heather shares a beautiful story of the central magic of Florida oranges. And we talk about what exactly the Big Bang has to do with whipped cream and champagne bubbles. 
If that doesn't get you interested, I don't really know what will. Cheers to that, and I hope that you enjoy this eye-opening, perspective-changing, practical and hopeful conversation as much as I did. Heather, hi! We're recording, we're all good to go. Thank you so much for taking the time today to chat to me for the podcast. It's really great to be speaking to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and it's mutual. I'm really excited to be seeing you and to be talking to you, and thanks so much for the opportunity to come on. No worries at all. So, the way that I normally start these is just to give people an idea of who you are and what your story has been, because obviously your business is called The Mindful Kitchen, Mm -hmm. and we connected because of that mindful element. And I would like to know, what does that actually mean? Because it kind of sounds, at first glance, like you're just talking about mindful eating, which is awesome, and mindful eating is cool, and we love it, and we can talk more about that later if we want to. But actually, what you're doing goes further than just mindful eating, doesn't it? And I'd love to know... What, what is your mission? What are you about? Tell us. Uh, that's a very big question, yes. And what is the meaning of life? Um, <laughs> what is the meaning of life and everything? <laughs> tell me, Heather, tell me. <laughs> um, right, super astute. So the, the Mindful Kitchen exists to help people develop what's called a nature-relatedness practice. And nature relatedness is quite distinct from connecting to nature. And I like to give people the example sometimes of going for a walk in the forest. And if you go for a walk in the forest with the intent to connect to nature, well, number one, you're already coming from it with a presupposed notion that nature is something that's out there. It's not inside of you. And you go for that walk in the woods and you look around at the beautiful sights, the sounds, the smells, and you probably feel blissed out for a few hours. Um, And you really enjoy your time having been a visitor in the woods. That's connecting to nature. Nature relatedness, now that's a totally different thing. Um, It's moving much, much further So it starts from a vantage point of not feeling as though nature is out there, but that nature is in you. It comes from the vantage point of understanding the complete interdependency of the whole natural biosystem, biosphere, ecosystem web. So when you go for that same walk in the woods, you don't feel like a visitor in the woods. You feel at home, very much at home. And... The effect isn't something, those the blissed out, relaxed, calming feelings that you get when you're on that walk in the woods. Um, It doesn't just last for a short period of time. It's something that stays with you because that walk in the woods is just one element of a practice that reinforces your world's view. So that's at least how nature relatedness is distinct from connecting to nature. I hope that that answers a part of your question, I think, and I'm sure that I could carry on. Um, I would like to understand how you came to be interested in nature relatedness and why 
that is the core element of your business because obviously your business is called a mindful kitchen because I know that you run workshops using food as a way to explain this concept to people. Yeah. But why did you go down the route of nature relatedness and use that as your guiding principle rather than simply like like a lot of people taking a mindful walk in nature or getting more into mindful eating just by itself what was your own journey that brought you towards this and how is how is nature relatedness helpful in your life i mean maybe that's the second question i'd like to know your journey towards discovering that principle first cool yeah i'll start with the with my journey um aspect of it um Somebody had asked me um, a similar question not too long ago um, to try to understand um, what is nature relatedness and where did it start in your life? When did you develop that awareness of it? Um, And you know what's really funny? The first thought that came to my mind was Christmas when I was five years old. And this is 1980. um, And I lived in upstate New York. And my grandparents had moved down to Tampa, Florida. They were, you know, snowbirds, which is a typical thing for East Coast families. And I was a five-year-old, so there was a part of me that was really nervous that um, Santa wasn't going to be able to find us because we weren't at home, but we were at my grandparents' apartment in Florida, so he's going to get all confused. So I was a little bit stressed out um, on the journey down there. That's and so adorable. I love that. It's so cute. It's yeah. Nice. yeah, exactly. And then... <laughs> And then Christmas morning came, and I got a tricycle. And there are a lot of pictures of that tricycle. And when I see those pictures, I kind of, I think back, and it cues the, the memories. But the secondary memory that I have about that Christmas that stays with me in every essence of my body is my grandfather, just after the tricycle was revealed, saying to me, come on, kid, we've got breakfast to make. And he took me for a walk uh, into an orange grove, and he brought a ladder, and we climbed up the orange tree together. And he was, you know, I was five, so granddad was really close behind me, right, to make sure that uh, nobody fell over. And we reached into the tree, and we, you know, twisted and turned and quick pulled the oranges off the tree. And even when I'm telling you right now, I can, I can see the light as it was. I can hear the rustle of the leaves. I can smell this kind of like bittersweet scent. I can feel kind of like the stickiness of probably birds and atmosphere and little bits of juice that were on that orange. And then we walked home and we, my grandma taught me how to make fresh squeezed orange juice. And that is, that's the memory that I have. It has nothing to do with the tricycle. It, the internalized memory and the feelings of complete and utter bliss, connecting to these grown-ups that I loved, but also connecting to the place where we were together and a shared experience of it and a shared experience of, you know, uh, granddad gave me the ability to see that same place that we were in, not from my perspective, but the perspective of the orange, right? And I got it. I got it. So, I mean, that's the five-year-old story where it all began. So it also kind of began with this, I always just really had this real sense of my 
um, environment and my surroundings. Um, it was always something that was really kind of intense for me on a, a sensory level. Um, and I like to say a sensual level, because I think we, we confuse that with like, sexy time way too much. I think there's something about sensuality that's in all essence of our being and helps us to feel this interdependence and interconnectedness. Um, and so that has just kind of been an essence of who I am. Now, when I fast forward through the practical things in my life, right? So I did my degree in history, really wanted to work in the museum world. I, um, I'm British, um, so I spent um, most of my adult life in London working in the arts um, for Tate, for the Royal Academy of Arts, uh, places like that. Um, switched over to working in youth services and for youth charities. Um, and burning underneath all of that um, was this deep desire to do something about climate change. Um, because what I would do in my spare time was still get out there, go hiking. You know, I always had to live on a park. Um, and this connection between the environment and food was, I was always a foodie, I just loved to eat. And, you know, once the sustainable food movement came along, I was like, oh yeah, of course, right? I mean, that's nothing new to me, really. You know, that's just kind of like how I've been brought up and, you know, how I saw food and how food is, you know, a reflection of our values and the choices that we make. Um, reflect how we want to treat the environment and the place around us um, and the people who are helping to bring the food to our tables. So I just kind of intrinsically had known that since, well, since I was five, right? Um, and so I just decided the time had come and I had to make a big light switch. So I did. I got my moxie together. <laughs> and I've been, um, I've been working on a project in Denmark um, with the Royal Academy, there was an exhibition with a Danish artist, Wilhelm Hammershoi. So it was bringing me over to Copenhagen quite a bit, and I started to discover what the new Nordic food movement was about, and how what was happening in Denmark and Scandinavia in general was really pushing kind of what sustainable, how sustainable eating was being um, interpreted in the UK to a totally different level, you know. Um, so I wanted to be a part of it. So I started by getting my MBA at Copenhagen Business School because I wanted to top up some of my skills. Um, and then I launched my first business, um, which was a sustainable eatery and workshop hub in, uh, in Copenhagen on Vesterbrogel. And it was an amazing experience. And it was the workshops that I loved the most that really were the greatest aha moments for me. So, you know, it kind of started with a typical farm to fork restaurant thing, showing people how to eat locally, seasonally, organically, how to waste less, um, showing them how to cook the way that we cooked in our restaurant in their, in their own homes, um, and why all of that is important. So that was a lot of fun. But at the big aha moment for me was if shifting our food system was as simple as giving people top 10 to-do lists, top tips of what they're supposed to do, Hannah, we would live in a different world already. We would. Just telling people what to do isn't enough. <laughs> it's helping people on a journey uh, to figure out how to change their lives, how to develop new habits. And I will fast forward just a little bit, but a couple of years ago, I got to do climate reality, climate change communication training with Al Gore. 
And he finished this three-day session with this call to action. And so this is Al Gore of Inconvenient Truth fame. Al the, the Al Gore. Okay. Al Gore, yes, it's brilliant. He, um, yep, yep, and anybody out there who's interested in doing this, you can apply if climate change is your mission. Um, he runs a charity called Climate Reality, and if you get accepted, you get to go on this three-day training where he teaches you how to present his Nobel Prize-winning PowerPoint, um, and you work with Nobel Prize-winning scientists of all varieties. Um, you meet politicians who are really devoted to climate change. You meet leading communications experts. Um, they really try to train you up so you can be ambassadors, and it's, a, it's an amazing experience that I would highly recommend. So that's my pitch for the climate reality. <laughs> but this is about um, understanding how to communicate the realities of climate change to people so that they really get it and they can actually do something about it. That's what you're yeah. saying, right? You've got it. And so you get all of the basics of science um, and the science of climate change and how the science of climate change isn't just about global warming and perhaps actually from a marketing perspective calling it global warming wasn't a great idea um perhaps well, from a yeah a certain american president doesn't seem to get it he, <laughs> he keeps on tweeting about the fact that there's a snowstorm therefore global warming isn't happening and it's like can someone explain the concept of global warming to donald trump because i don't think he got the memo like anyway <laughs> Carry on, carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and anyway, so Al Gore finished the session with his call to action, and um, his, it was three questions, and his first question was, okay, folks, must we change? And everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you have to have your head in the sand or be Donald Trump not to realize that, you know, we must change. The second question was, can we change? And the answer was, well, clearly, and we understand even better after the past three days, that science and technology has pretty much figured it all out. We could flip a switch tomorrow, and we know what we need to do to mitigate our um, global temperature-wise to this 1.5 degree target um, that is the Paris Climate Agreement. So the third question was, will we change and that is the big unknown so it flips the script on all of this we're in a situation right now because the world in the past several hundred years has been structured around a very human-centric world and one where kind of humanity is at a hierarchy in the face of climate change which we've been we've been having a conversation around sustainability so basically how can we do what we've always done but in a more efficient, sustainable way. And what we figured out is that's not good enough. <laughs> it's clearly not good enough because we haven't been making change rapidly enough in any way, shape, or form. So this, this need to develop the will to change also, or it stand, starts with kind of flipping the script. So we're not thinking in terms of a triangle and we're not thinking in terms of a hierarchy and a human-centric perspective as like we're on the top and everything else is beneath us but it's moving into what we all learned in school in basic biology, that there's this web of interconnectedness. And when it comes to food, you know, step one is to learn about a food chain, step two is to learn about a food web. And in a web, nobody's on top. 
<laughs> everything is of equal importance and any one action has an opposite and equal reaction in different elements of that web. So developing the will to change requires people to totally shift their perspectives on how they see themselves in the world around them. And being able to do this in a way that's going to be effective is where nature relatedness comes in. <laughs> so, I mean, nature relatedness is, um, it, it is mindfulness, but it's like the hard science mindfulness. Um, and what nature relatedness is, is really a shifting of identity so that you move into this web-like identity to really build the will to try to make significant change. Um, and how that works is that, number one, we all know that our identity shifts over our lifetimes. I mean, Hannah, I don't know. I mean, who you were 10 years ago and how you defined yourself, I'm going to guess is different than now. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's on a continuum, but absolutely. Yeah, definitely. The more that you learn, the more that you experience gradually over the years different things become more important to you you maybe become happier in your skin or you learn something that you realize is defining in your life you change absolutely yes identity isn't stagnant exactly yeah i think most anybody and everybody can relate to that in some capacity so nature relatedness um, is an eco-psychological study that shows that people can shift from that pyramid to that web and it only happens exactly as you just said with new knowledge and new experiences that help you develop um, new perspectives and then that begins to shift this very essence of who you see yourself as being in the world um, and then your priorities change your behavior changes because your values have shifted in accordance to your identity um, and when we're talking about this nature related identity shift um, towards the whole natural world feeling like home as opposed to nature being out there. You know, nature's inside of you. That's going back to that idea that we talked about in the beginning. As you go on that journey and you develop a practice so that you have lots of little interventions that help you get there, what we have found um, measurably is that anxiety and stress reduces massively, um, that people's cognitive abilities increase measurably and significantly, um, people perform better at work, um, people are more creative, um, students have greater focus. We find that we have much greater capacity for empathy for other humans, um, but for all other forms of life. And gradually, as you go on that well-being journey, well, you start to really seamlessly develop more eco-friendly habits. and. It makes perfect sense because uh, healthy people are usually not self-destructive people. I mean, hey, we all let anger get the best of us from time to time or, you know, wake up on New Year's Day with a bit of a hangover. Um, you know, this is life. But as a general rule, a, a healthy mental and emotional, a person who has mental and emotional well-being as a general rule really tries to avoid self-destructive behavior. Now, if you see yourself as an interconnected part of the entire natural world, 
Well, you try not to be destructive of it either because it is you. Yeah. That's really, it's just extremely fascinating to understand that because you're basically talking about recognizing yourself as part of the entire ecosystem, the entire world, natural world, effectively. And so it's about reevaluating how you see yourself. And I love that you talked about the kind of concrete benefits or or byproducts almost in a way, but obviously people are searching for something that is going to make them feel more connected, especially today. We feel so atomized. Often, you know, there's the highest rates of loneliness among younger people today and feeling like we aren't connected to something and also having a lot of guilt about the the role that we play in the world. And a lot of younger people nowadays are, like you say, feeling very anxious, feeling very isolated, but also have a real social conscience and want to understand how to feel connected in some way to the world that that we're living in. And and what I what I love about hearing you talk about it is just how you've managed to take all the things that you love and all your interests in your life. So, you know, the fan, fantastic story about the Florida oranges and you know mm-hmm. h- how that related you to your family but also being so mindful of the smells and the scents and the, the tastes and, and the feel of the stickiness on your hand. I mean, that is like classic mindfulness. It's classic mindfulness. But you're taking that a step further and saying, what does this actually mean for the planet? It's not just me. It's not just how I relate to the smell of the orange or the stickiness of the juice. It's also, okay, how can I actually use this mindfulness to help the environment and to become a less destructive part of the natural world that we live in? I just think it's, it, it really is such, such a fresh approach to it. And I've never really heard anybody take the principles of, of mindfulness to that extent and I just I love it I love how it really embodies what people say about meditation which is it's not just a selfish self-indulgent solitary hobby actually if you meditate well and you do it correctly and you are mindful in your life and you do it over a certain amount of time yeah. Buddhist monks will tell you that it isn't just about you. It's about how you relate to the world and being compassionate to yourself. Of course, it starts with you. And many people come to mindfulness meditation because they're they're struggling in themselves and because they, like you say, they're anxious, they feel disconnected, they're stressed, they don't have enough time in their lives. And they start doing mindfulness meditation because they think they've got a problem with themselves. But actually, the more that we do it, we realize that it's actually about being compassionate, not only to ourselves, but then extending that compassion to other people and to the rest of the world. And realizing that being compassionate to ourselves is actually about being kind and compassionate to everything and the way that we move through the world. And I I think the way that you talk about nature relatedness is such a fantastic way of just summarizing that whole thing but from 
a really compassionate, responsible point of view. Because especially me living in the city, you know, I look, I look out on beautiful trees where I sit and my desk, but I am basically in central London, basically. And it's really easy to feel like you're not connected to anything. It's really easy to think that mindfulness is just about you and your anxiety and figuring out your own head. And I think it's so important to actually say, it's not just about that. It's about the world that we live in as well. And it's about being connected to other people who are also mindful and other elements in the world that are natural or that we can show compassion towards. Quite. I didn't mean and to go off on quite such a long tangent there, but I just felt like it's important like, to, to, to I mean, state um, that. I mean, how wonderful. <laughs> it sounds like you're, you know, relating it. It's a new idea and you're relating it to your own life. And it's just wonderful to hear. And you know, so many ideas kind of sprang up as you were, as you were talking. Um, and I think that there's the rise of mindfulness and people accepting the need for mindfulness um, is really exciting. And I think it's wonderful that people are identifying that they feel some sense of disconnectedness. I see this as a first step because the question then, of course, is, but what are you disconnected from? And if you're using mindfulness as a coping mechanism, how, where is that really going to get you? So if you keep putting yourself in the same environment in similar situations, but you're able to use mindfulness so that you can just process them differently, then I see mindfulness as a coping mechanism as opposed to um, it being used fully as um, a channel um, and a skill set that can create really big change. So once people understand the basics of mindfulness and they start to ask, deeper questions such as, what am I feeling disconnected from? Then we start having a really different conversation. We start applying mindfulness in a different way. So taking it back to nature relatedness, one study that really gets me excited, um, a project that eco-psychologists did looking at children's behavior and children's patterns of empathy. And what they found was that as a general rule, up until we're about 11 or 12 years old, we have the same amount of compassion for trees as we do for other humans. Um, and I say trees just because it was trees that were used in, in the study and the scenarios that um, the researchers used with children. And what they have deducted is that we're taught, we're taught that trees are less important than humans. It's not our natural inclination or our instinctual way of being. Our instinctual way of being as a child, and quite, to quite a, um, I think a, a, an advanced age, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're early on the developmental scale, but you're not three. <laughs> um, at the age of eight, nine, ten, you still see that tree as being as important as you. So. And when we start flipping through the pages, I get, you know, today's Valentine's Day and, you know, we were, you know, talking a little bit about the holiday before we started recording. And I get super excited about digging into the origins of a lot of our rituals, some that, you know, nowadays they get lambasted as being super commercial. But when you go back to the origins, you realize that they come from a time when 
people did things like worship trees um, because people could read the language of nature. Um, and there's this idea that comes from anthropology that says all culture mimics nature. So it's all based on the basis of all of our culture and all of our civilization is this idea of the web, that we're all interdependent. That's where it all came from originally. And that's why, you know, when we look at uh, quote unquote primitive cultures, you know, and, you know, um, examples that, you know, we can all relate to could be, you know, ideas of Native American tribes in um, North America or the indigenous peoples, um, the Aborigines um, in Australia. Um, there are plenty more, um, but there are these kind of different ideologies of the world um, that they still exist. But that was the basis from which we all came. And we are taught, it, and it's also our instinctual inclination, and then we are taught not to believe that. And then so I find it fascinating that the faster pace our world goes, because our whole socioeconomic system is set up to believe in the pyramid of humans dominating right? Dominating all of nature and our ability to control. Um, and, and, and the more Sisyphus it gets, um, the more we've got to push that rock futilely up the hill, the mountain, um, the more we start to freak out because we know it's not right. And so we're at the starting point of where we're like, okay, how do I change myself? How do I change myself so that I can be more mindful and I can breathe and I can, um, I can learn how to, to cope and to look at what my true priorities are in this moment so that I can deal. I can still get out there and do my corporate job um, and bring the money in and, and do what society expects me to do. I think a lot of that is actually going on. Um, and some people change and they find you know, new, new courses of, of, of work and new, new sense of purpose, but it's still kind of fitted into like, the systems as they exist. So if we if we start asking new questions about like all right so once I once I let's really explore what we're completely and utterly disconnected from within you know not just the city versus the countryside <laughs> but what are we totally disconnected from in terms of our own kind of instincts um, as humans because as humans uh, we constantly are in exchange with the entirety of the natural world and we can get onto that because that's that's why food. Um, it's just a really, really obvious, tangible way to develop one's awareness of our um, constant and continual process of exchange with the rest of the world. So once we start to really look at that, then we can start to answer dis different questions of what am I disconnected from? It's not just my, my feelings. It's, it's also <laughs> what's causing those feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so why do, I, why do I feel that way in the society in which we've, cre we've created? And what is it that I need to reconnect to on a deeper level? And then if I do that, what kind of changes? How does that change my behavior on a wider scale? And then the big ding-dong question for me and what I'm super excited about is if we did this en masse, it goes back to the El Gore question of developing will. Like, how would we change all of our systems? Because simply doing things a little bit better or a little bit greener, um, that we have been doing previously isn't the answer. Um, there are, an, the IPCC will tell you, you know, that's not a model for creating a regenerative future. We can stave off the inevitable a bit longer, but we're not creating a long-term regenerative future if we just try to do status quo, but more sustainably. You know, we don't want to sustain where we are now. We want to change it. We want revolution. We want to talk about 
um, a regenerative world um, and sustaining planet Earth so that it can sustain human life. And that's going to require all of us to kind of shift our identity um, because we're all involved in this business of civilization building. So I know that's really, really big and it goes way out there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's where the mindfulness uh, uh, movement, I, I think it's fair to call it a movement. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I would definitely call it a movement. Yeah, because mm. it's, it's become oh. so, so mainstream now, people to greater or lesser levels, understanding how mindfulness helps us connect with who we are and how we live in the world. And it's so fascinating the way that you're explaining it, just taking it, you know, one step at a time. Okay, let's learn to breathe. Okay, let's figure out how that can help us cope with our current environment. Oh, actually, let's look at our environment. Let's go one step further and figure out how we can change it so that we don't have to cope with it we can actually change the root of it. And for some people that might be like you say, stepping off the corporate treadmill and changing their situation. And then you're taking it again, another step further and thinking, well, how can we change the whole systems of the way that we live, the way that we eat, the way that we try and like you say, live in a much more respectful way towards nature and realizing that we are nature. I mean, well, boom, it's being respectful to ourselves. It's respecting. So when we're not respectful to nature, yeah. we're disrespecting ourselves. And well, this is the thing. I mean, it's we'll talk about food in a second, but I mean, even just relating it back to something as simple as breathing. I mean, I talk about breathing all the time because I I'm I specialize in mindfulness meditation, and often that starts with the breath. But you don't have to go very far before you realize that if you start to pollute the natural world you can't breathe like it's as simple as that like if your air is not pure you can't even breathe you're not going to get very far if you can't even breathe and it's kind of like understanding like we do use nature all the time because we're breathing in oxygen and air and so it's and i think and i'll just interject so this is yeah really good that's a super super great example when we talk about breathing so if we talk about breathing as an element of mindfulness or uh, yoga or tai chi um, all of these uh, practices are kind of based in breathing um, and breathing is a big part of nature relatedness but the way that nature relatedness would then frame it is what brings me breath so beginner's mind is one of the, the massive tools of a nature relatedness practice and so when we say what brings me breath then we have to pause and we have to consider, people might first say air. What brings me clean air? Trees. Okay. How did it come that trees were able to um, absorb carbon dioxide and to purify the air so that um, humans can um, evolve and be part of this planet? Um, how did any mammals, how did any life form other than microbiota and plant life form ever come to be? Um, and it, were they were the ancestors of trees you know it was it was it was basic basic plant life um and microbiota um billions of years ago that kind of started this evolutionary dance that created the atmosphere that has made it possible for us to take any single breath and every time we mindfully breathe in when we have that knowledge we can offer gratitude we can offer we can build our awareness um, we can offer our respect and 
overwhelmingly really what we can do every time we take a breath with that in mind is understand how we're in constant exchange with the rest of the natural world and how quite literally it is going through your lungs and enabling every thought, every feeling, every ounce of anything you have ever done in your life. So that's what I mean when I say nature isn't out there, it's literally in you. And I love, again, going back to this idea that when kids are small, I love that the study was focused on trees. <laughs> and I love thinking about how people used to be tree worshippers because really, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not aware of anything that we've ever done as humans that's much more sensible than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just makes so much sense to me. Um, and if mindfulness can take us back there because we're getting in touch and we're reconsidering what breathing is from a nature-relatedness perspective, well, that, that's exciting to me. If people are doing that, that makes me optimistic about the future. More people are doing that. Totally. You know what I really love about this as well is that it dances such a brilliant line between sounding really woo-woo and not being woo-woo at all. Because this is something that I always have to come up against when I'm talking to people about meditation because many people still think that meditation is a little bit woo-woo or they think that you've, you know, you've got to go to an ashram in India to do it or you've got to be a bit of a hippie to do it. And it's kind of like, actually, you're talking about scientific peer-reviewed studies about trees. Like, this isn't woo-woo stuff. You're, you can take it in as much of a woo-woo way as you like. And some people might describe themselves as hippie tree worshippers and that's very much up to them but I don't think either of us would describe ourselves as that we're just trying to understand literally scientifically how this practice can help us understand the world that we're living in and I just I love that I love how you're able to unite a very beautiful image of a tree being worshipped and being respected at the same time as using this scientific peer-reviewed study and understanding that actually it's just about breathing in and out. And that's not particularly woo-woo, that's just... It's not breathing in and out. It's basic biology and basic exactly. ecology. Yeah. That's what it is. I love it. And, I love it. And I think it's, it's um, an expansion of awareness that, again, is going from the triangle into the circle. It's not about me. It's about we. And what's good for people, what's truly good for people, is good for the planet. And when we start to kind of have conversations about that in the food capacity, um, well, I guess number one, I like to have a much wider conversation about food because when I'm talking to you about breathing and atmosphere and trees, I'm talking about food. <laughs> because, I mean, this... Um, Similar to kind of uh, mindfulness as like a springboard to maybe nature-related mindfulness um, and talking about that being a trajectory, I think it's fun to think about the farm-to-fork movement to the nature-related regenerative food ecosystem movement. That's a mouthful. Um, that needs something snappier. <laughs> they need an acronym or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is terrible. Um, that's just totally terrible. But, um, <laughs> but the, I don't know, you're the wordsmith. You're the journalist. It's, it's your job to come up with that. Um, <laughs> I love it. But, um, you know, farm, farm to Fork um, kind of extended our awareness, you know, kind of extended our awareness, again, from, like, the human of the 21st century vantage point. Um, so we thought more local, seasonal, organic, wasteless. Um, so why? 
Um, so we save the planet. <laughs> Um, like we're the ones that are going to save the planet. Woohoo! We're, you know, number one, we're talking about saving us, really. The planet's still going to keep on ticking, no matter what we do. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to blow it up. Um, so it's still going to keep on ticking and it'll, it'll renew itself in some way. I mean, the big question is if it will still be habitable for human beings, right? Right. And so farm to fork is good. Um, but it's very much from the human capacity and it's this like this really limited worldview of like food comes from a farm. A farm is not nature. A farm, a farm is like a countryside version of a city where we're trying to control nature in a certain way so it will produce something for us. Yeah. And so when you start to think about uh, food um, from a nature relatedness perspective, you go way beyond the farm, right? You think about things um, that have good peer-reviewed names like agroecology um, and permaculture and biodynamic farming practices um, and the things that are uh, for the policy wonks out there that also sound not very woo-woo like the common agricultural policy um, <laughs> are starting to pay attention to things coming out of academia about agroecology. So we're starting to give subsidies um, to farmers so that they look after the wilderness and not just the farm. Okay. So they're so, looking at, yeah. create at microclimates and microecosystems. Again, understanding how it's all connected. Yeah. 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 So, um, so the food movement boop, is kind of like, it's getting much more holistic. So, um, and I mean, food is the reason why civilization exists. You know, we stopped roaming around and, we let, uh, I love uh, Noval um, Harari um, who wrote Sapiens and Sapiens kind of starts with this idea that um, did we domesticate wheat or did we actually domesticate us? And I'm like, yeah, wow. you got it, you got it. Oh my it. gosh, uh, I need to read that book. I, I mean, obviously it's a bestseller. I keep seeing it everywhere and I'll, I'll reference it in the show notes as well, his, his uh, two books. Uh, is one of them called Homo Sapiens and the other, uh, Tommy, I've forgotten them. I'll Homo, to... Deus. Homo, Homo Deus. Homo Deus, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, okay, wow, I love it. I love how it's just, yeah, and he's amazing. I mean, I, wrote, I read an article with him recently about his mindfulness meditation habit and how that has helped him to understand oh, wow. the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I would love to talk specifically about food in the way yeah. that you introduce it in your workshops because yeah. I know it sounds amazing I mean I haven't had chance to do one of your workshops yet but I have seen the structure of one and I love how the two things that really caught my eye were understanding nature relatedness from the point of view of drinking a glass of Prosecco or a glass of champagne which I love <laughs> and the second way was churning cream into butter making your own butter mm -hmm. and I would love if you could just explain those two examples and why you use those two examples to bring this concept to complete beginners cool um yes so champagne and butter so um 
Basically, we use food. Um, I'll just say this really briefly. We use food as a tool to practice nature relatedness because it's a great opportunity. I mean, most of us live in urban environments and more of us will be in the future. That's, that's the trend. Um, and food is something I think most of us love. We all engage in the act of eating at least three times a day. So boom, there are three opportunities to practice nature relatedness, right? So the workshops tried to introduce people to the three main components of how to practice nature relatedness with food. Um, and it isn't just about the rituals. So it isn't just about getting in the kitchen and cooking. It's about doing it mindfully. And we all know that mindfulness is about, first of all, it's storytelling. It's about flipping the script so that you see things from a new capacity. Um, second of all, um, it's, about skills like beginner's mind. Um, and so what I help to do is help people learn how to shape new questions about food and about the act of eating. So um, I should instance, I should say that beginner's mind, because we've talked about that a couple of times, yeah. most people that listen to this may know this, but beginner's mind is one of the principles of mindfulness Theravada meditation. So the fact that you never do the same meditation session twice, you're never the same, everything's always changing, approaching everything as if you'd never done it before, even if you've meditated a million times before, the principle is that you sit down and you notice things as if you'd never done it before, and that's the beginner's mind. So I just wanted to make sure people knew what that was, so carry on. Brilliant, brilliant, thank you. So when you, can, when you combine storytelling and beginner's mind, so with storytelling, let's just take an apple, right? Um, from a human perspective, we might think of, oh, I would like a tasty, healthy, um, sweet, but you know, healthy, sweet, low-calorie snack. I will take this apple. Nice. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Um, but what happens when we start telling the story of the apple from the apple's perspective and not our perspective, right? We start to ask different questions. Right? So if we're thinking about it from our perspective, it'll be like, oh, what's the nutritional um, value of this apple? Um, you know, what's the flavor of this apple? Is it tart? Is it tangy? Um, but if we start thinking about it from the apple's perspective, you know, um, the apple <laughs> is thinking, you know, yeah, I wonder what the, the growing conditions are going to be like this year. You know, I wonder how much energy um, I should be sending to the branches to, to start um, actually, you know, producing um, the blossoms. Um, uh, what can I tell from the patterns of the wind, you know, when the birds are going to be back to help me pollinate and reproduce um, and to, to prune my flowers so that my, my apples will be, will be big and, and plump. Um, what should I what should I know from like the patterns of, of weather over the past few months? Um, what kind of signals should I be sending out into my root system to let other trees and to let the soil system know um, what's going on and what to prepare for? Will there be drought? Um, so those are those are kind of some of the questions that we might begin to form if we're if we flip the story, we start to ask very different questions, right? Um, and then, um, our rituals, which are the third part. And with food, rituals are, you know, they're all things that we love, right? So there is uh, um, eating and cooking and grocery shopping, going out to dinner. When you do those things, but you do them with 
a different narrative. You've asked beginner's mind questions um, and maybe started to find some solutions to them. Um, then your ritual has a nature relatedness intent to it. So it's kind of as simple as, you know, Hannah, maybe every day at four o'clock, 364 days a year, you have a cup of tea and a biscuit or a small slice of cake. But on your birthday, that cake has entirely different meaning than every other day of the year when you do that same thing. And that's because you've got a story behind it. Um, you'll be asking questions about your future and what matters to you and the people you want to be gathered with and connected to and celebrating with. Um, and that piece of cake, the act of eating that piece of cake or sharing that cake with a variety of people, it's different than any other cake that you're going to eat the entire year. And so, I mean, that's nature relatedness of food. Now, so you asked me the question of why Prosecco or champagne um, and why uh, butter and churning butter. So I think that, uh, well, I love champagne. I don't know about you. Um, and champagne is something that has this great meaning um, for humans that has nothing to do with the actual drink itself, right? Um, we choose champagne when we want to celebrate something um, on really important occasions. Um, it is often seen as a luxury item. You know, it, it, it is literally just wine. <laughs> it's wine, like any other wine, but it's much more luxurious than any other wine. Um, and sometimes when we're celebrating something with champagne, we don't even drink it. Sometimes we just kind of, you know, if you can picture a team celebrating after a big championship league win, you know, they just kind of shake it and they let it explode and it rushes all over them. Um, or this idea, like when you christen ships, like you'll see the royals go out and, you know, um, Bodie McBoatface gets like a big champagne bottle across the hall and hurrah, we have, we have a new boat. Such yeah. a waste of good champagne, oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a waste, but we do it. Like, you know, it's a weird sure. thing, but we accept that this is very normal human behavior. Yeah. Right? And we're imbuing, we're imbuing meaning into, like you say, what is essentially a glass of wine. <laughs> right. So I really like, we are imbuing meaning into something. So one reason why I often start the workshops with champagne is that it's something that everybody, most people love. Um, and even if people decide not to drink it, it doesn't matter. They're still very aware that there is a narrative around champagne in culture. So it's an easy tool to be able to tell a story about how food is a source of exchange with the rest of the natural world and that humans see food as something that derives meaning way beyond just putting something into our body um, that we need to sustain ourselves. And what's super interesting is then when you just begin to learn the basics about champagne, and I think everybody knows this, you know, why does champagne have bubbles, right? It's, again, it's about breathing. So it's about, it's about carbon dioxide, and it's about carbon dioxide that's been produced in collaboration um, with uh, are fermenting a grape, creating a liquid, and then asking yeast, so invisible life forms in the atmosphere, to come and live in it. And there's this quote from Dom Perignon, who was a real person, he was a monk, um, who mastered um, the art of effervescence. 
So Dom Perignon, this monk, mastered the art of what we call effervescence, which is really about the collaboration between grapes, humans, and yeast, and how we're using the elements of atmosphere to create this sparkly drink that fills us up in exchange with all of those elements that humans, whether we drink it or not, understand that we find value in the transcendence that it provides us. And as legend has it, when Dom Perignon mastered effervescence or felt that he had mastered effervescence, he exclaimed, come quick, I'm drinking the stars. Such a great quote. I love that quote. It just makes me want to drink champagne. It just makes me want to drink it. Like, why wouldn't you? I know. And (laughs) I intend to have a glass tonight, definitely. Yay! um, Yay! Yay! But so the champagne is kind of presented as storytelling because I think what's super interesting around nature-related narratives with food is that I'm talking about something that most of us know. We have stories around a lot of different foods it's just kind of bringing it together so people have that aha moment where they realize that those stories are about deriving meaning from exchange with the rest of the natural world mm-hmm. and that food actually embodies that. So totally. it's kind of introducing yeah. some of these stories so that people can then, I mean, obviously that opens people up to um, lots of different uh, questions and ideas so that when they go out and they're eating their uh hummus and carrot sticks for lunch you know the next day um maybe they think of hummus and carrot sticks in a slightly different way yeah and start to tell a little bit of a different story around it i love that i want to talk about butter next but i think another example that you have given me in the past is the idea of christmas dinner you know using turkey as as an example of this you know i pretty much never eat roast turkey any other day apart from on christmas and i wouldn't Mm -hmm. gather together with the whole of the rest of my family just to eat lunch most other days and yet again that's an that's a time when we imbue a huge amount of meaning and resonance to what is basically a roast turkey with the vegetables and whatever else you want to put with it and I think that is it's just a really interesting way of reconsidering your place in the world and how yeah. you how you relate to food and family and people and yourself and it's just I think that's fascinating it's a really interesting example that you use there um butter tell me about the butter the the churning of the the cream into butter we all love butter butter's amazing we couldn't have croissants without it tell me tell me why it's important <laughs> I know where would the world be without butter um yeah so um the butter making then um is uh, another ritual um so just to rehash three steps in a nature relatedness practice um so storytelling um flipping the narrative um beginner's mind questions and then embarking upon rituals and uh rituals that have different meaning um, and so this is where you go on that identity shifting journey when you're doing things like that. Um, and I also, from a uh, getting in, in touch with the, the basics once again and living a life that isn't very dependent on processed foods, 
Um, I like learning how to do things like churn my own butter um, because it sounds wacky and difficult, um, but it's also really, really super simple. Um, and we've just kind of forgotten that. You know, butter isn't something that we need to buy from Lorpac or Flora. We can, we can do it ourselves. Um, and it takes five minutes. It takes five minutes. Um, so um, there's also something that's hugely empowering about knowing that you, know, you don't need to rely on an industrialized system, that it's something that you can do yourself. And so when you go through the process of making butter, there is nothing that I've figured out how to do in the kitchen that more exemplifies the act of exchange to me. Because um, you've got to put loads and loads of energy into actually making the butter. So first and foremost, you know, you, you use cream and the cream has to be warmed. Um, and you put the cream into a jar, you fill it up halfway so the cream also has a bit of air. Now we can, we can also talk about, you know, where the cream has actually come from. Um, and where the cream has come from is not just a cow. Um, the cream has also come from uh, the, the grass that the cow has grazed, um, the insects that the cow has eaten, um, the, the soil that the cow has helped to, to manage um, as the cow has been grazing and moving and fertilizing quite naturally. Um, so all of that is kind of what brings us cream, and there's a really interesting story. There are different thoughts to be had around our relationship with livestock. Um, so similar to the idea, did wheat domesticate us or did we domesticate wheat? Um, all animals and all plants that are domesticated, ask that question and see what kind of conclusions you come to. It's very interesting. But so anyway, so there we are. We've got a jar, we've got a cream, and then you have to get shaking. Maybe you've got to shake, right? And so as you're shaking, it usually takes, if you've got warm cream, it's going to take you five, six minutes um, to transfer a jar of cream and air to um, a butter ball and buttermilk. Now, as you're going through this process, it's a fun science experiment. So I like to call it from butter to the big bang. So I'm utilizing all of my energy, right? So, and why do I have that energy? Food, air, so all of that, you know, this natural force of this natural exchange, and I'm exchanging more of it so that I can create more food for myself, right? But as I'm shaking and shaking and shaking, um, the warm cream is getting warmer. And so the molecules and the life in the cream are starting to move around. So you, the fat molecules, the heavy molecules start to disperse um, from the other molecules. So at one stage of this period, you get whipped cream. But as you keep going, and that's kind of like the beginning of the universe, so the Big Bang wasn't really an explosion, it was an expansion. And this is, you know, this idea that the world is constantly expanding. So when you get whipped cream, you're pretty much at, whoop, that's, that's the beginning, that's the Big Bang. It wasn't a big burst, it was just an expansion, right? And then there are different particulates. Um, so as space expands, there are more particulates that, you know, have more space. And so the, the effect of gravity starts to take over. and they start to weave in a certain orbit. And what happens is they weave in an orbit. Well, then planets and moons begin to develop these solid forms. And so what's happening in your butter jar, you begin to get this separation of a perfect little sphere that looks like a planet, like planet Earth, that sits within your buttermilk. So then the question is, do you have two things, or do you have one thing in that jar? 
it's all interconnected. On one level, you have expended your energy. So you've got your cow and your ecosystem that gave you your cream. You've got you and your energy and the energy that you've had because of the cow and the ecosystem in that cream. Then you've got the process that's all about the invisible life forms um, that you're interacting with, um, that can tell you the story of how the earth was actually created. And then on one, you know, one very figurative level, you've got a butterball and you've got buttermilk. But actually, it's all connected to the same thing. That is incredible. That is a fantastic way of showing what you're, what you're trying to explain. I love that. Oh, never going to look at whipped cream in the same way. <laughs> it's all the same thing. So, yeah, so that's why in the, in, the, in, the, in the workshop, we kind of introduce people to these basic ideas. But we're in the process of developing a digital membership scheme so that we can, people can um, absorb or uh, buy a membership so that in their, in their inbox, they get a weekly practice. Um, that happens seasonally, right? So you can get storytelling, you can get beginner's mind, and then you can get rituals around the food that are actually in season so that you can start this nature-relatedness journey. Um, and it'll be measurable. So we're working with uh, some of these psychologists that I have been talking about. There's already a nature-relatedness scale that exists so that you can measure your progress. And so we're going to be working on being able to do correlations so that people can have a measurable experience so that it isn't just a state-based, well, this is cool, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, over the course of a season, you can see how their journey on that nature-relatedness scale will increase. And then we're going to try to um, ask questions and create interventions so people can see how that's having an effect um, in their lives. So not just about the personal well-being, but... First, you know, how they're seeing the world and then eventually how they're acting in the world. Um, That's so, incredible. Yeah. I, I love how you have an amazing talent for describing what may seem like very complex ideas and very big ideas, talking about civilization and the Big Bang and taking huge ideas that most people with the best will in the world don't really understand and don't know much about, myself included and bringing it into something that is very tangible and very practical and very understandable, if that's the right word, comprehensible to the average person that, that shops in a normal supermarket. And I think that is one of the greatest assets in what you, what you are doing at the moment, making it understandable and practical. So I would love to know more about that. Obviously, you're not going to tell me the whole thing, because otherwise, why would anyone sign up with what you're doing in any way? You know, this is a free podcast, and I'm not going to ask you to give away yeah. all of your secrets. But what I would like to know is, what other ways can people start to practice this in their own lives? If they listen to this podcast and they think, okay, well, I understand the principles of mindfulness, I understand the principles of ritual and beginner's mind... I understand that it's important for me to care about my environment and I want to get more interested in this nature-relatedness thing. What can they do? What would be your advice for them? If people walked away and they started habitually doing one thing, I would recommend that they ask two questions about the food that they eat at least once every day. And those two questions are, one, 
What part of a plant or an animal does this food come from? And the second question is, what value does that plant or animal or that part of a plant or that part of an animal have for the rest of nature that has nothing directly to do with human beings? And the more people start to ask those two questions, what part of a plant does this food come from? And what value does that plant have for the rest of nature that doesn't directly have anything to do with human beings? Because of course the answer is somehow it will be because it's all an interconnected web. But the whole point is to just start, get your mind thinking about food in a totally different way. And those two questions will get you thinking about food in an entirely different way and will help you to develop other questions. Um, and hopefully the more people get really interested in it, then they, you know, start buying some books and Googling. Um, I've got a book that they can buy that's coming out um, in uh, autumn 2019. Nice, <laughs> nice yeah. plug. Yeah. We'll talk about how people can find out more about you um, at the end of the podcast. So that's yeah. fantastic to know that you've got yeah. that resource coming out. That's, that's really that's cool. That's just a really good starting point because mm. I think the other thing... Um, Hey, we haven't really touched on this, but I think it's super important, Hannah, um, because I know I feel this, that with a lot of the, the people that I, I work with, um, overwhelmingly, they're, they're switched on to climate change and they care. Um, and one of the things I hear over and over and over again is, Heather, I'm just, I'm exhausted by compromise. So I just feel like I'm supposed to be really good but sometimes I'm bad despite my best intentions because it's like the world isn't set up for me to be good all the time. It's really hard. And is being good really doing good, <laughs> right? So I, my heart goes out to people because, I mean, I get it. I live in this world too. I mean, come on. Um, and by good, you mean trying to be environmentally and nature-relatedly aware. People are trying, exactly. people are trying to do this and they understand the importance and they're asking themselves these questions and they're finding that actually the modern world that they live in makes it really difficult. And so they just get exhausted. Yeah, exactly. And hopeless. Um, and I think my, my message and what I really hope when it catches on what a nature relatedness practice can provide people with is an acceptance that we're living in a world in transition, that there are things that we can do to push that transition. But when it comes to developing new habits, all new habits that stick are the product of forming a different worldview, a different relationship with yourself, a different narrative in your own mind, new habits, that are your coping mechanisms, but also help to reinforce that worldview. And then slowly and surely developing rituals in your life because rituals are habitual. So I have never met a human being who has decided to quit smoking or lose 20 pounds that went to bed one night and then the next day woke up and never smoked a cigarette again or was suddenly 20 pounds dinner overnight. It's just really basic examples. That, that it doesn't happen that way. So totally to, to lose a lot of weight, to quit smoking, 
at its core, there'll be something about a story that you're telling yourself and how you identify that helped you to start that habit in the first place. And there's going to be all sorts of things about your lifestyle that you need to address um, if you want to do more than cold turkey and to shift your lifestyle so that um, your new habits are something that will ritualistically stick in your life. Um, so that, that's what nature relatedness, and that's why the, the practice exists. Um, because just like yoga, I mean, you can do it once and you feel great, limber, but you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Um, you've got to learn your foundations, and then the foundations become rote, like you get your muscle memory down, right? Um, <laughs> that said, it's never the same. You know, some days, great. Other days, what the, who is this body? I don't understand. It's not me. Um, but you have to keep doing it over and over again. Expect there to be fluctuation. Um, and uh, it takes time for yoga to go from something that gives you physical well-being to something that also gives you mental and emotional well-being. That takes time. Nature relatedness takes time. And trying to say that um, uh, driving a car versus riding a bicycle makes you a bad person versus being a good person is really an oversimplification. And I, you know, I want to help to free people from that um, because you can do more things that matter more because it habitually becomes your life if you give yourself the space and time to go on a journey. And don't just think, if I read a to-do list, I can totally adapt my life and that's how I'm going to behave. Those are my New Year's resolutions and I will never again buy anything wrapped in plastic at the supermarket. For most of us, it's not going to work. So let's, let's park that and let's Let's, I mean, again, it goes way beyond woohoo. It just goes about habit development, right, Hannah? So we all know what it takes to develop habits that stick. So let's use that science. Let's just use that science to create a greener world. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I think it's really cool that you use the example of yoga because obviously that relates so much to what I do as well. Mindfulness, you know, it's a practice. You can't just do one practice you know, for an hour on a Saturday morning and think that that's it. You're not just going to do one yoga workout or one run and think that you're done. It's a continual change in the way that you approach your habits in your life. And again, always reevaluating and restating why this is important and why I'm doing it and how it's helping me in my life. And I love that. And I think a phrase that I saw on your website was eating the way that you do yoga. And I, I just really love that. I think that's a really simple catchphrase. And again, you know, it is just a catchphrase and there's obviously more to it than that. But I think that's really cool. You know, eating the way that you do yoga really helps to encapsulate it and bring it to people who do yoga, but who've never heard of nature relatedness and how the two things connect, you know, the mindfulness, the ritual, the beginner's mind, how it's different some days to other days learning how it's good for you, why it's good for you. You know, if you have a bad yoga session one day, that doesn't mean you're never going to do yoga again. You're just going to try again. Same with meditation. You know, same with, like you say, if you try and never buy anything wrapped in plastic again, you're probably going to fail and you're probably going to feel bad about yourself. But if you try and buy two things a week that aren't wrapped in plastic, it might be a little easier. You might be able to work up 
in a more sustainable way. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I like that you talked about the challenge of not being perfect about nature relatedness and sort of trying to relate it to your everyday life. Is there anything about it that you still find challenging in your own life? And how do you try and address that? Mm. Yes. <laughs> sure, there are things that I find somewhat challenging. Um, I guess, I guess what I would love to know, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, I just want to make sure my question is clear. I guess what I really mean is, what are some of the concrete examples of how nature-relatedness shows up in your life, firstly? Mm. And secondly... What are the challenges that you that you still find when you're trying to embrace this philosophy? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say um, in terms of the the concrete benefits that I can really put my finger on, and I can say, you know, after a few years of doing this, I just see this huge difference. Um, a big part of that is. I work from home a lot, you know, I've been writing and developing this whole solo entrepreneurship thing. Um, You find yourself solo quite a bit. I think you can relate to that, hey? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Solo entrepreneurship, what's it called? Solopreneurship? Solopreneurship, yeah, Yeah, that's right. For me, it basically means sitting around in my yoga pants quite a lot by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, like, you know, I get dressed up for Skype calls now just because it gives me an excuse to feel fancy. Totally. It's good. Yeah. I love it. I love that. The other day I was thinking, oh, I've got to go on video to do a thing on Instagram. I better put some lipstick on. <laughs> and that's, that's dressing up for me now, putting on yeah. some lipstick. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Carry on. <laughs> but I see life in an entirely different way that surrounds me. So there's this, I feel, this is going to sound woo-woo, but it's the truth. My plants keep me company. There is a magpie that usually visits my balcony at certain times of day. I know the time of day um, when, I call him Clark, when Clark arrives on the balcony. Um, I pay so much more attention to the phases of light. This is one thing that I realize that I'm marking my calendar by in a way I had never done previously. So I start to feel like, you know, the past couple of weeks, I've been like, oh, spring's coming. And, you know, it's rainy, it's cold, it's gray. And, but the light's different. It's not just the amount of light. The light itself is different. You start to really notice the shifts of the Earth's axis um, and how the rays of light and the color of light that hits the Earth is very different as the seasons turn. There's something about the sense of smell that has gone through the roof for me. And I pick up on, you know, rain, soil in a much more intense way. And, you know, I can feel wafts of scent um, as I'm walking down the street in ways that I never could before. Or, you know, if my my boyfriend is cooking something on the other side of the room um, and hasn't even started cooking yet, but is just kind of opened a packet or something, it's like, oh, oh, that's cinnamon. Do you have cinnamon over there? Mm-hmm. Yeah weirdo you know so I mean that's I mean there's this kind of intensity and so this again it goes back to me and there's there's loads that I could also waffle on about peer-reviewed studies um but there's 
okay, I am going to say this. I am going to say this about the sense of smell, and this is another reason why we use food. No, do, that... do. I love, I love sense of smell. I'm obsessed with smell. I think... I think people don't talk about smell enough. Whenever I do mindfulness meditation, um, like guided tracks or something, I always say to people, notice the way that your feet feel, but also notice the air around you and notice the smells. And people laugh. They laugh when I say notice the smells around you. And I'm like, why is that funny? Like, I always notice the smells that are around me. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so well, important. Exactly, and that's that's instinctual love. Um, so the the thing with smell, so we can all relate to. We all know that like part of the being in love or like um, physically attracted to somebody is connected to being able to smell their pheromones. So have you ever, you know, the phrase, "Oh, I can smell fear." Mm-hmm. We literally used to be able to, or we still can, if we just work on enhancing our sense of smell. So all emotions are chemical. It isn't just love and attraction emotions, but we can smell fear and empathy and anger um, and kindness. They all are different um, connected um, emotions that um, give off different smells. And it isn't just humans, of course, you know, um, trees communicate with smell. And so that's one of the things that when we go for walks in the forest and, you know, we're going to be doing this um, full seasonal set of workshops in London that kind of start in, in June at midsummer. And then we pop up, people can buy the full course and, you know, we'll, we'll pop up, um, once a month, I'm sorry, once a quarter, you know, throughout the year. Um, and part of that's going to be walking in the same places to notice how the smells are different. So you can tune in to what trees are trying to communicate um, that's to people amazing. and to other trees. Um, and again, that's definitely not woo-woo. That's just science. Um, but that's so. you're so right because, I mean, I was saying to you before we started recording, I think both of us have been for a run today and I was running on my normal path and... You're so right. You can tell the difference. You can tell just by smelling, just by feeling. Even if your eyes are closed, you can tell what season it is, more or less. Even in the UK, you know, when the seasons are maybe different varieties of rain. No, I'm kidding. But but <laughs> even even if the... There, are. there is something interesting in that. It's The type of rain differs. <laughs> well, no, it definitely does. And I, I just... It's... It's so fascinating to me what you're saying, because basically what you're talking about, the way that I understand it, is hugely heightening your sense of mindfulness and awareness in your environment. To put it very simply, and I know that I'm simplifying it massively there, but it's so true. You can walk outside and even without looking at the trees, even without knowing what day it is on your calendar, you can think, oh, spring is in the air, or I feel a, a cold snap is coming, or, oh no, winter is, winter is nearly here. Or, and it's, yeah. it, it's so fascinating when you tune into it. But I think that you're right. It's a process of learning how to be mindful in that way. And it's not something that most of us are taught, or it's not the way that most of us are brought up. We know what day it is, we know what time it is because we've got clocks, we've got calendars. So we look outside and we think, oh yeah, cool, end of February or whatever, 
nearly spring. But actually, I love the way that you said that, that you're basically heightening your experience of being a human in the world. And why would you not want to do that? I think... Why would you not want to do that? And that's our true nature. And so as we do this, we get back to what we are as animals that are interdependent upon the rest of the, the natural world. And that's what just kind of pops. And then, you know, I was telling you before we started recording as well that there's this this swan couple that lives in a canal near me. And when I go out for my walks and my runs, I often see them, but they've been, you know, on their winter holidays, soaking up the sun in Spain or something. And um, just Sunday, um, I noticed that they were back, or it was the first time I noticed that they were back. Um, and I've seen them every day since. But there's this, with my nature relatedness journey, I don't just look at it like, oh, the swans are back. I, I mean, I had a nature gasm on Sunday. I was so excited. I was like a dog who's, whose owner had been, you know, away for, um, for a week or something. I was just like, you're back, guys, you're here. Oh, and then, I love that I just, you have that. I'm you have. Like, is really coming. I mean, it's really. Swan like, friends and your magpie Clark friend. I just, I love that. <laughs> that you would notice the swans on your, on your run and they've been on holiday to Spain and now they're back in Denmark. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So you might say, yeah, this might put people off. Like, you know, they become, they go totally mental. Oh, I still wow. have lots of human friends as well, just so you know. Yeah, we, we have human, friends. we have human friends too. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love, I love that. I love, you know, you're saying it tongue in cheek, but it's just a fantastic symbol. It's like I said, it's a really fantastic metaphor for it, how we live in this world. And I think it's so important to remember that because that's ultimately all we have really it's it's all we have and at the end of the day it's all that really matters <laughs> it's all that really matters and i mean the crazier the world gets and i mean what do i find challenging so um i'll tell you i sometimes if i'm really honest um i find optimism challenging um when i look at the state of the world um and i'm really glad that um a lot of responsible um news agencies, media agencies are talking about climate change um, in a much different, more aggressive and urgent way than they have before. Um, but when I, when I look at that and I look at the leaders of the world and I look at how we're focused on Brexit and the Irish backstop and I think, really? I mean, I get why it's important. I'm not trying to diminish the importance of it, but it just feels I can become a little bit pessimistic because I really, really worry that we don't have time and that we're just really not focused on on the crisis that exists. <laughs> we do have a crisis and it's not Brexit, but it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger crisis and more important crisis than what Brexit truly is um, without being flippant about the crisis that Brexit is. Um, I think you understand that. Um, totally, so, yeah. So, I mean, there is that. So um, since that is my challenge, then I got to tell you, you know, having my bird friends and being able to have gone on this journey so that when I see the swans for the first time, it just makes me so excited. Um, that's just lovely. And also because I've always really loved cooking and I've always been a big holiday person. Those rituals were, you know, you talked about Christmas, Christmas dinner, you know, those rituals and things like that have always been really important to me. And um, I used to be this person who I couldn't wait until Thanksgiving came, Christmas came, 
um, birthdays came so I could partake in those rituals. Now, you know, there are small moments of like, oh, I haven't made butter in a couple of weeks. I'm going to make butter. Um, or, oh my gosh, it's strawberry time. I get to make my strawberry preserves this weekend. And those moments are as exciting to me. I get the same feelings that I get about making Christmas dinner. And how wonderful it is to be able to feel that way about cooking 12 months a year, um, as opposed to, you know, just on special occasion days, because you start to realize every day is a special occasion. But I guess I, I get challenged because, you know, my life is busy too. So I don't, you know, if I find the time to create one of those proper special occasions in the kitchen twice a month, um, usually on Sundays, you know, great. You know, for the rest of it, it's more low-key stuff. Um, and then in terms of the compromise thing, I'm definitely challenged. Flying definitely challenges me. I feel so guilty about air travel. <laughs> um, uh, and I try to modify it. And, you know, I've been taking the train more to visit family in Germany and things like that. Um, and I don't own a car. I bicycle instead. So, you know, I, I know that I make a lot of other choices in my life. But I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I'm balancing, you know, um, as a I'm living in this world that's in transition <laughs> as opposed to trying to be perfect. Um, and I feel compromised. Um, so I definitely really feel the more I go on the nature relatedness journey, the more um, those moments actually hurt. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Does that, I hope that answers your question. That's the honest answer. It does. It sounds like you're being very hard on yourself, which is something <laughs> that all of us probably relate to a lot. We're trying to do something and we feel like we're falling short. But actually, the fact that you're even thinking about it kind of puts you ahead of a lot of people. And I think that that's, yeah, it's pretty amazing that you're spreading that message. Um, but I totally see, but it goes back to what you said as well about like trying not to be perfect and just trying to make it something that you can fit into your life and changing your mindset slowly. It's not something that you can do overnight. No. Mm. And I think the other real key message for me is that people really shouldn't diminish the power of changing one's mindset because when we change our perspective, we change everything, everything. Again, taking it back to yoga, that's why we do inversion. Because we're physically changing our perspective. And it's just a metaphor, isn't it, to train our brains to shift perspective. Because also going back to the not wooey stuff, um, I like to read um, a bit of neuroscience, um, but definitely not academic peer-reviewed studies because I wouldn't understand them. But, you know, lovely books that people like Brian Cox and David Eagleman write so that, you know, us lay people can, like, dig into it. But, uh, you know, the, the stuff that I understand is that we're just lazy because our brains, like when we go through routines, we create synapse connections. Totally. And, and, and that's our go-to. So shifting our mindset is no easy task because you literally have to shift how your brain thinks yeah. and how your brain prioritizes information. So shifting a mindset is everything and it takes time. And so if you think it takes time for an individual, imagine how long it takes for, you know, whole societies, although it can happen quickly. And, you know, taking this back to the mindfulness revolution, you know, Hannah, 10 years ago, even five years ago, it wasn't, it was wooey, right? I mean, there were, there were some gurus out there talking about it, but it was nowhere near as mainstream as it is today. Totally. Yeah. So 
It happens faster than we think it is. It will do, but probably happens slower than people like me would really like it to. <laughs> yeah, I, I relate to that a lot. And I, I think that is a really important message as well. For this podcast, which talks about mindfulness, but also just about being kind to ourselves as humans. The idea that, like you said, reading about scientific studies that show how our habits can change our brain. I mean, this is something that I'm obsessed with. We could do another podcast just geeking out over neuroscience and studies that show how these rituals change the brain. I mean, I'm geeking out at the moment over a study that shows how mindfulness trains different areas of our brain and attention and doing changing the part of our brain that is focused and that in turn dampens down the amygdala which makes us less susceptible to fight or flight and all this stuff I mean I'm just literally like I'm gonna stop because I can geek out for it about it for hours um but literally changing your brain like physically changing your brain to the point where engaging in these rituals such as mindfulness meditation such as questioning yourself such as changing the way that you habitually think this stuff shows up on fmri scans it's not just woo woo nonsense it's literally scientifically proven stuff that you can see on a screen and that to me is beyond fascinating and i And I love that because it shows not only the power of ritual and the power of changing the way that we think, but it also, as you say, demonstrates that it takes time and it's like building a muscle. You wouldn't go to the gym once and think you were done. So it's the same as changing any habit. It takes time. And I think, I mean, this is another reason why I use food as a medium um, because food is a very, or eating is a very sensory experience, um, and our senses, as we all know, um, are just basically receptors for our brain. We don't taste just for, for the sake of tasting. It's not about our tongue. It's about the message that our tongue is sending to our brain and the electrical responses that it sets off. Um, and even more importantly, our sense of smell, as you were saying, and this uh, fact that the sense of smell is connected to our amygdala and our hippocampus. And, you know, what do those receptors do in the brain? They monitor memory, emotion, and critically, motivation. So the more we become, we begin to flip the script on things, the more we begin to ask different questions that help us to see the act of eating as a connection to all of nature and not just from a human perspective. And then if we slow down how we eat so that we're using all of our senses, I mean, that's a light touch simple ritual that we could do um, every day, every time that we eat. Um, we're actually teaching our brain new, new, new messages. We're teaching our brain new things. So if, quote unquote, you know, eating something that's more environmentally friendly, like legumes, you can't go wrong with legumes, really good news story. So if when you're eating some hummus or some pea soup or um, even, you know, just a nice legume stir fry um, with some veggies as some examples, if you're pausing, smelling, taking in the environment all around you, telling yourself a story, reminding yourself about how legumes are nitrogen fixers and help to conserve soil and why that's so important, Um, those legumes begin to become 
comfort food because it's smell that makes food comfort food because of its connection to our centers of emotion and motivation and memory. So comfort food doesn't have to be chocolate chip cookies or macaroni and cheese. I mean, it, it, it is those things because um, well, usually when, you know, somebody who is taking care of us in a time when maybe we felt a little emotionally vulnerable, they gave that to us. So instead, if you decide to eat something that is kind of from an agroecological, <laughs> um, holistically beneficial food in moments when you feel vulnerable and make an imprint in your brain of why you decided to do that, well, that begins to change so much. It really does. It's not just mm. about your lentil soup. <laughs> yeah. Instead, don't work with your life. Um, and yeah, that, science. That's amazing again, because then that brings it back to how can we change our habits to be healthier? How can we change our habits to feel happier? How can we make our diet comforting but also healthy? And it is, again, yeah. rejecting the stories that we have about ourselves. And I think that brings it full circle back to how can we live a happier, healthier, calmer, less stressed life? And realising that the rituals that we have in our life and the stories that we tell about who we are and what we do on a daily basis, if we start to look at those stories and realise that they're not set in stone and that we can reframe them, that is the starting point for changing so much in our life, but in a really nourishing way. We're not looking at it going, oh, macaroni and cheese is really bad and terrible and we should never eat it. We're just looking at some gorgeous chickpea soup or whatever and thinking well this is also good and it's just a, a reframing and I don't know whether that's something that just comes in maturity we realize that we can't eat macaroni cheese every day without you know having to buy bigger pants <laughs> I don't know <laughs> but, but I mean you know I love macaroni cheese but also I also love understanding that maybe something else is a little bit healthier for me today and that's also fine yeah and that, again, is a form of self-care, and it just brings it all full, full circle, Heather, and it's brilliant. It totally brings it full circle. And yeah. I love it. I love it so much. It's fantastic. Wow. So I've asked you pretty much all of the questions that I had. Great. But I did want to ask, I do sometimes at the end of my podcasts ask more sort of quick-fire questions just to help people take away the basic message of what it is that you're talking about. So... I know that it's difficult because what you're talking about is connected to so many things. But yeah. I would love to ask you, if you had to choose one way that nature-relatedness helps you, what would it be? And you have touched upon the intensity of your experiences, so maybe it would be that, I don't know. I think the one thing I would like people to take away from a nature-relatedness practice is viscerally and sensually feeling and experiencing the act of exchange that we are all constantly in every single second of our lives with the rest of the natural world. It's this, to feel the exchange. Yeah, it goes back to that that you were saying before, the intensity of the way that you smell the world or the way that you appreciate the changing light. I love that. It's, it's, yeah. it's really beautiful. It was really hopeful as well. I really love that. 
because I feel sad in winter. I'm a person that likes sunshine. So if I can feel spring in the air, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling hopeful. I love it. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. And you can also find that you feel less sad in the winter as well. It's That, yeah. that definitely is a result. People That's who suffer be. in winter, when they go on a nature-relatedness journey, it really diminishes the impact of, of feeling sad, S-A-D, in winter. Yeah. yeah. Oh. We need to talk more about that. I mean, <laughs> literally winter is like, oh, I need to. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I have a daylight lamp and everything. I love it. Um, <laughs> so my next question would be, if people are extremely busy and feeling like they want to implement this in their lives and they don't know where to start, what would be the one place that you would advise them to begin right now, this week? Go to our Instagram page. So our Instagram page, <laughs> just start following our Instagram. So basically what our content is doing right now, um, every week we are working on a different topic. So right now we're working through um, uh, the six nature relatedness questions that are that form the nature relatedness scale that an academic named Elizabeth Nisbet um, developed at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. Um, and so we're explaining what they are. Um, and then we are offering people vehicles by which to experiment with storytelling, beginner's mind, and a ritual. Um, and so that is what is happening. Our stories kind of introduce the new and our sixth topic each week. Um, and then throughout the week, you get your first your story, then your beginner's mind, and then your ritual. So then it's really something that you can do in a minute or two a day. Okay, I really love that because it's literally like, what's the easiest way that a really busy, stressed out, city living person can do to implement this in their lives? And it's like, go on Instagram, which is what we're all doing anyway, and get yeah. some tips and tricks directly from your Instagram page. I think that's, that's amazing. Okay, cool. So obviously, the last question is... Where can people find you? What is your Instagram? What's your website? I know that you're in the process of relaunching your website, but where can people find you if they want to find out more, firstly? And secondly, get involved with your workshops that you're delivering in London. <laughs> well, by the time this podcast goes live, the website will be up and running, I'm sure. Um, yay! So that is uh, themindfulkitchen.org, O-R-G. And, and it's the it's the, the mindful kitchen, isn't it? It's not mindful. The mindful kitchen. The mindful kitchen, all one word. Dot org. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Um, and what uh, is being developed? So you've got a treasure trove of videos uh, that are all about the story of autumn and the story of winter um, and the basic elements of nature relatedness um, that you can experiment with um, on the website. We are going to be launching a Kickstarter campaign on the first day of spring that runs until May Day, um, purposefully, <laughs> um, that for which we are developing the funds to launch our digital membership scheme, um, so to develop it. So that's what I was talking about in terms of a customized digital platform so people in a half hour or less each week could begin to develop their own nature-relatedness practice at home. Um, that Kickstarter campaign um, also offers people the opportunity to uh, buy our book that Ivy Press is going to be publishing um, in advance. 
Um, and so the book is going to be hitting, it's called The Mindful Kitchen, A Recipe for Life. And it isn't just a cookbook, but it is a book that could be one year of nature-relatedness practice with food. Um, so that's a nice introduction. So that'll be out in the UK as well as the USA in autumn 2019. And then we're taking it from there. So there are lots of workshops that we do run. So we do introductory workshops in Copenhagen as well as London. Um, we are working with Food at Heart, uh, Meredith Whiteley and her chocolate meditation um, to develop a one year long course. And so there'll be five sessions within the course of the year um, each one, and we're calling it Urban Connectedness, uh, an Urban Connectedness Retreat. And so we basically teach people mindfulness um, through the lens of nature-relatedness. Um, and we'll be walking around different parts of London, dealing with different themes um, five different times a year. So at midsummer, at harvest season, at Christmas, um, the lean season, which is what we're in right now, this early spring season, and then bringing it back um, to, to, to midsummer um, once again. Um, so people can go on a full cycle. Um, and they're two and a, they are, well, actually, that's a lie. They are uh, four hour sessions each. So they'll be on the weekends. Um, and we will start each session with a mindfulness meditation walk. Um, in a really familiar part of London um, so that you can see all the stuff I was talking about in terms of developing that nature-gasm, like sensual experience every time you're, you know, running to a meeting or to a pub to meet a mate. Um, you can have it. It's great. Um, so we'll, we'll help you do that through storytelling, um, through your walk. Then we'll talk about a different nature-relatedness skill, um, and then we'll finish um, with a ritual. So everybody will also walk away with like an, an arsenal of, of new cookery skills, but how to blend cookery and mindfulness together. Um, and there'll be a workbook that will take people through the course of the, the, the five seasons, um, five sessions um, as well. So you can start writing your own story about your own journey. Um, and so we're going to trial that in, in London because um, a one-off workshop is a great way to have an introduction. And we will welcome people to come on this course uh, and to just give one a shot. Um, but then we really invite people who want to develop nature-relatedness practice to go on the full year journey um, because that will be so much more meaningful. It's not, it, it's not a state-based thing. You do it once, it feels good, it's interesting. Um, if, you keep, if you develop a practice like yoga, it'll change your world. Yeah, that's incredible. I love that. Gosh, you've got so much going on. It's so exciting. Wow. That's what's going on. So I hope that gives people some ideas of, of what they could do to get involved. And people can stay up to date with all of this stuff if they go to your website. And you mentioned your Instagram. So what is your Instagram? Where can people go? So our Instagram handle is nature with every bite. Okay. Nature with every bite. Okay. All one word. All one word. Nature with every bite. Okay, cool. And then people can see those practical tips that you mentioned and stay on top of everything that is going yeah. on, which sounds like a lot, and I love that. How awesome is that? Well, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, oh, for, thank you. Thank you for talking me through a lot of those concepts that I hadn't really understood before. And I really appreciate you showing us how we can take these big ideas and look at something that at first glance seems quite complicated and overwhelming 
and try to understand how we can apply it practically to our everyday lives, which is, after all, all that we're trying to do. So thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you from London to Copenhagen. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Hannah. It was great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. And that's it for this week. If you like this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out and you get new episodes every single week. This podcast is a new project for me and I'm just trying to spread the word and get the power of mindfulness meditation out there to every single person who needs it. There'll be a brand new podcast pretty much every week, plus some free meditations as well. And I've got some interviews with other badass women in the pipeline, so you will not want to miss out. Also, make sure that you grab a free copy of my ultimate meditation checklist for your happiest, healthiest, and most consistent meditation habit ever. Because we all know it only works if we actually do it, right? Head on over to breathelikeabadass.com forward slash checklist. And if you could leave a review whenever you listen to my podcast, that would be amazing. In the meantime, come follow me on Instagram for more meditation and self-love tips at Breathe Like a Badass. I'm there every day and I'm just out here to remind you that wherever you go, there you are and where you are is pretty damn great. That's it for this week. Just remember, breathe like a badass and I will talk to you next time.